The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you govern all things both in heaven and on earth. Mercifully hear the supplications of your people, and in our time grant us your peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. A reading from Genesis. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the, of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. The word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading is from 1 Peter chapter 3. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life... And see good days. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you suffer, should suffer for righteousness' sake, 
you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subject to him. The word of the Lord. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Gospel of the Lord. We do celebrate you, King Jesus, that you do govern all things over heaven and earth. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us and through your spirit uh, form us uh, to be more and more like you. And we ask all this in your precious name. Amen. You can be seated. A number of years ago, I got to know a, a man named Michael, um, and uh, uh, Michael went through a number of extremely um, painful kind of medical issues um, that he was dealing with. Um, eventually, he had to go to the hospital. He was a veteran, and so he went to the uh, VA hospital um, here um, in the, the cities, um, and I went to visit him a couple days after he had um, this uh, medical procedure and was starting to recover, although he was still in a, a lot of pain um, at that point. And as we were talking, he was, he was telling me about his experience. I mean, he shared that, you know, this room he was in, he had a, a roommate who was not in the room at the time. But he said, when I first got into the room after my procedure and was talking uh, to this uh, roommate, I was just telling him, man, I've really been through a lot. I mean, I'm, I've been through a lot of pain. I'm still in a lot of pain. Um, and he said, my roommate was like, well, hey, 
you could have it worse. It could be much worse. Let me tell you about this guy I heard about who's in the hospital right now and started to talk about um, uh, this guy he had heard about who had really suffered a lot of pain. Well, Michael was listening to him explain what this guy went through, and then he realized, I'm that guy. Like, he's actually describing what I've gone through, and somehow it's gotten out among the VA about what I've been through. And so he stopped his roommate and said, hey, just so you know, that's me. You know, you're trying to make me feel better by telling me it could be worse, but I'm the guy you're talking about who it could be worse. And he knew he was in bad shape when people were pointing to him to make other people feel better about uh, their suffering. Um, now, I, I kind of think of that as sort of the ultimate example why when people are suffering, it's really not helpful to tell them it could be worse. Uh, I think we probably all know that. I mean, it's probably unusual to have a situation where the person you're telling it could be worse actually is the worst, right? That they're, they're in the worst possible situation was how my friend uh, Michael felt. Um, but in general, right, when we say, well, it could be worse, we're kind of saying, hey, stop complaining. Whatever you're experiencing isn't that bad. And when you're suffering, you really don't want people telling you kind of like your suffering's illegitimate, like it doesn't count because it could be so much worse. But I do want to suggest there is a way in which when we're suffering, when we're facing trials, whatever that may look like, um, that actually it is good to know it could be worse in the sense actually that that's um, uh, communicated through our First Peter passage today. We've been in this series on uh, First Peter um, and if you've been in the series, if you stay First Peter, you know that this um, letter is written to people who are suffering. They were suffering from persecution. Um, as Andine spoke to um, uh, last week, these are folks who were really on the bottom of sort of the, the social stratosphere of that time, which meant they probably suffered economic hardship and other hardships. These are people familiar with suffering. And Peter, in a sense, is saying to them in their suffering and saying to us, whether we're suffering or whether we're just living life with whatever challenges it holds, it could be worse. But not it could be worse, like look how bad other people have it, but it could be worse in that the Lord is with you in your suffering. The Lord provides for you. And so even as you suffer, and it's legitimate, he doesn't say, oh, get over it, it's not that bad. Right? He acknowledges what they're going through. It's hard, and, and we can acknowledge that. But he's also wanting to make clear, but God is actually providing for you in this. And so you can see, actually, the ways God has provided, um, which isn't, again, a denial of suffering or trials, but is a strengthening, is an encouragement in the midst of them. So I want to look at two broad things I believe this passage um, uh, brings out on what does God provide for us. And again, whether we're in the midst of suffering or whether we're, our life is fantastic, these are things God provides for us to give us strength for whatever we face. And one thing, the first thing I want to emphasize is he provides for us a calling to bless. That actually a gift that we have from the Lord is a calling he has given us to bless others, to give of ourselves to build others up. And that is a blessing. Look at verse um, 8 um, there, or verse 9. I'm sorry, the second verse in the passage there, the bottom of page 6. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Basically what we see here is although we have different callings as far as vocation, different callings as far as relationship among the body of Christ, we all share certain callings. And one of those callings that we all share if we are a follower of Christ is to bless. Bless, because this is what you are called to. You are called to bless, and you will obtain a blessing. And so that calling to bless is actually a gift. Maybe it doesn't seem like that. Maybe we think, man, if someone's suffering, especially if they're suffering persecution, and you tell them, hey, in addition to your suffering, you need to bless others, maybe that feels like a burden, right? It's like, man, I already am suffering, and now you're telling me there's more I have to do. But Peter's not sharing it as a burden. He's sharing it as a gift, this is actually a gift you have to bless because as you bless, you will be blessed. 
Now look at uh, verse 8, where he, he begins. This, um, that finally actually tells us this is flowing out of what came before. In some ways, this is sort of the closing of, the, of what he was saying before as he continues, you know, in that theme. And what he said before this, if you are here um, last, work, last week and heard Andine preach about this, he'd been talking about um, uh, being subjected, um, about um, slaves and masters, about wives um, and husbands and the different ways and different relationships. There's, there's um, you know, subjecting, um, or, um, uh, subjecting ourselves to others. Uh, but the grand theme is um, be, be a subject to God, right? Be in submission to the Lord. And I think that finally all of you is making clear, look, whatever your place in life, um, whatever your relationships, you are called to submit yourself to the Lord, right? He is your Lord. Um, and actually, what does submission look like? What are the marks of submission? Well, here they are. Finally, all of you, as you submit to the Lord, have unity of mind, sympathy, brother love, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. These are what marks a life of submission to the Lord. This is what marks a community that is submitted to the Lord. This is what it looks like. Now, there's so much there, right? I mean, there's, I, I think when I read this, I hope when you read it, you think, oh, I want that, right? I want a community where there's unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly and sisterly love and a tender heart and a humble mind. All right, let's just focus on one of those. I want to just focus in on the tender heart. What is that calling us to when we think, what does it mean to have a, a tender heart? I think one way to answer that question is actually to think about the opposite. What does it look like to have a hard heart? And that's a, a term we'll use at times, right? If someone is hard-hearted, what are we saying? Well, usually, right, if we're saying someone's hard-hearted, we're perhaps saying that they're um, lacking compassion, they're lacking care for others. Maybe um, they seem more concerned about themselves um, and their own needs than the needs of others. Hard-heartedness at times may be used to describe those who um, are kind of sure that they have nothing to learn Right? If we kind of say, man, that person's hard-hearted, like you can't tell them anything, right? If you suggest something, they kind of say, I know that. You know what? Why would you think, you know, I didn't know that? You know, I, I don't need to be taught anything. And in the scriptures, hard-heartedness is often used to speak of those who turn away from the Lord, who perhaps um, uh, rebel against God or turn away again from his clear invitation. We can think of um, uh, Moses and Pharaoh um, during the Exodus. When Pharaoh continued to resist God, even with the various plagues, with the ten plagues, Pharaoh was given opportunity after opportunity to trust in the Lord as he saw the Lord's power, but he refused to do so. He was hard-hearted. But also when we think about you know, being hard of heart, a hardness of heart, there's also right an element of protection in that. Right? Hardness of heart oftentimes grows out of a wounded heart, a heart that perhaps has been beat up. Perhaps that hardness of heart is a, bit, a little bit like scar t- tissue, that's formed around the heart. That if someone's experienced pain, as they experience difficulties, maybe in their faith, maybe in their life, they become hard-hearted because they don't want to experience any more pain. They don't want to risk um, a tender heart. I think that actually brings out sort of the, the risk involved in this invitation in verse 8. Unity of mind, sympathy, love, tender heart, a humble mind, all those things take an element of risk. They take an element of vulnerability to them. To be tender-hearted is basically going to say, I'm going to allow my heart to feel pain and to feel hurt, right? To feel loss. And the passage makes it very clear, and our lives make it very clear if the passage didn't. It didn't right? We can be submitted to the Lord and still experience pain. We can be submitted to the Lord and still experience suffering. And that tender heart then doesn't mean, hey, if you have a tender heart in the Lord and out of submission to the Lord, you won't experience pain. We will. But actually, the message is you can have a tender heart because ultimately, it's the Lord who holds your heart, right? It's the Lord who is with you. And even if you experience that pain, you do not need to become hard-hearted. 
because he is redeeming that pain and ultimately will bring it to an end. He's actually working in the midst of that. Again, we look forward to the time when suffering will end, but even in this time, the Lord, as we remain tenderhearted to him, can grow us, actually. But there's risk involved there. Again, it comes out of actually trusting that the one I have submitted myself to right, is the Lord of heaven and earth, as we just sang, but also is the one who knows me, who cares for me. Peter quotes Psalm 34 here in um, the, the passage right underneath that in verses um, 10 through 12. Right? And later in Psalm 34, a few verses after this, it says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. So he acknowledges it's, it's possible to experience brokenheartedness, but the Lord is with you in that. And better to stay tenderhearted and experience all that the Lord has for you than to harden your heart. And so that's the invitation. That's the mark of submission to, to the Lord. And then out of that, we bless. Because our lives are submitted to the Lord, because our lives are submitted to the one who blesses, that we can bless. And so when we experience evil, we can respond actually not with evil, but with blessing. When we experience reviling, we can respond with blessing so that we may obtain a blessing. I'm actually struck that even those who you know, are not people of faith, um, it's very common to have people talk about, hey, as you bless, you'll be blessed. I mean, I don't think that's, you know, Christians are the only ones who believe that, right? And you hear feel-good stories all the time of people who, you know, stepped out and sought to bless others and actually were more blessed, right? I mean, it's kind of a cliche. You know, I was more blessed than those that I um, went out to serve, right? But we understand the, the spiritual reality, the greater reality behind that is, of course, we're blessed as we bless, because as we seek to bless, we are seeking to be like the Lord. We're imitating Him, as we seek to honor God and imitate Him, we are going to be blessed, right? And so there's actually a blessing in blessing itself, right? As we act in that way, of course we're built up because we're acting as the Lord created us to act, as He formed us to act. But there's also the reality that we know that the Lord sees that. He sees it. And even when you are seeking to bless and no one else sees it, even when you're seeking to bless others and you feel like it's a lost cause and you're seeking to bless and nobody sees it, nobody seems to be blessed, the Lord sees that. He makes it, and Peter is making that very clear in that quote of Psalm 34, right? If you want to see good days, right, turn away from evil and do good. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. So we have a clear principle, right? To, to respond to that calling to bless is to receive blessing in the blessing, but also in the Lord celebrating that and seeing that and knowing our Father sees us. Right? But there's also the flip side of that. That the Lord sees the good, he sees the blessing, and we are blessed as we bless. But also the Lord sees evil, and he comes against evil, he comes against injustice. And that's important for us to remember as well, right? I mean, Peter references uh, Noah's Ark in this, and we had the reading of of the flood, right? Our Lord comes against evil. He will only tolerate, right, the lack of justice for so long. And we know ultimately he will judge, and that also motivates us. And that's important at the end of the psalm. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. As we bless, we're blessed, but we're also sobered by the reality that the Lord comes against evil. And that's really important. Because, you know, again, look at uh, verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. This makes it clear as we seek to bless others, even our enemies, that doesn't mean we're in any way meant to enable or to give power to evil. I'm, again, Andine spoke to this really well um, last week, right? Yes, we're called to submission, but that doesn't mean we're okay with injustice, right? We submit to the Lord in order to come against injustice, in order to stand against injustice. And even when we suffer, right, we, we show mercy to those who persecute us or to those who cause suffering or those who are enemies of the Lord, but we do so in order that they may turn 
from their evil and their injustice. And we don't want to enable evil in any way. We long to see, right, the end of evil, and we look forward to when the Lord will completely bring it to, end, to an end. Well, He will obliterate all injustice and evil. And so that's key. Again, as we think about loving our enemies, we do so in order that they would turn from their evil. And so, again, verse 15, in your hearts, honor, the Christ, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So you hear in that, bless, in order that others may see the hope that you have. Be ready, right? When people say, why are you actually responding to evil with blessing? Why don't you revile? People are reviling you. Why don't you revile back? Why do you have hope in the midst of suffering? And to be ready to say, because of the Lord, right? I've submitted myself to the one who has saved me, who has given me new life. And because of him, I have hope even in the midst of suffering. So as we give a defense, right, it's in order that those who do evil, who do not know the Lord, would come to know him and turn away. It's also clear, right, that to acknowledge both the Lord's blessing as we bless, but also the Lord's judgment against evil, right, that comes against fear. In the end of verse 14, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. He's not denying you may experience persecution. You are experiencing persecution. You are suffering, but you do not need to be afraid, right? The one who watches over you ultimately will judge all the earth. He is your advocate, right? He will be with you no matter what. Do not be afraid. And that ties into the second way the Lord provides for us, right? There's so many ways. The second way I want to focus on, right? The Lord provides a calling to bless, but the Lord provides the victory of Jesus, right? The defeat of evil, right? I mean, that's assumed, right, in that call to bless. We can call, we can respond to that calling to bless others because the Lord has defeated ultimately all evil, right? We haven't yet felt the full um, effect of that defeat, but we know that the battle has been won. And that victory is key in living faithfully in the midst of suffering, in the midst of challenges, to live in the victory of Jesus. So again, this is something that Peter's already um, uh, uh, spoken to, but he really focuses in on that in that last paragraph on page 7, on the victory of Christ. And if you think about it, it's clear, why would this be so important that this group understands Jesus has overcome all other authority, right? That he has overcome all evil forces. Again, there's still evil at work, but he ultimately has won the battle. Because you think about it, right, these are people who've put their faith in Christ, right? And yet now that they've put their faith in Christ and confessed Jesus as Lord, are experiencing persecution, right, from other lords, right, smaller lords, governors, right, people in political power, right, business leaders. And so you can feel the tension that they must have felt. Wait a second, I've submitted, I've confessed Jesus as Lord, and yet those in authority over me are mistreating me. But yet I worship the one with ultimate authority. How can this be happening? This was even a struggle for John the Baptist. If you remember in the gospel, right, John the Baptist, a man of incredible faith, had a moment where he was put in prison, right, and, and initially, eventually put to death uh, by Herod. And when he was in prison, before he had been put to death, he actually sent some of his followers to go to Jesus and to ask Jesus, are you the one or is there another? Right, this is John who had pointed to Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right, he was one of the first to confess faith in Jesus as the Messiah. But as he sat in that prison, he doubted. We can understand how he doubted. Right? I believe Jesus is Lord, and yet Herod is persecuting me and causing me to suffer. Maybe, maybe I got it wrong. Right? That's how much sort of suffering um, can shake our faith. And Peter's aware of this. He's kind, right? Just as Jesus right, assured John the Baptist, like, hold on, right? Don't be offended by me. I am the Messiah. Peter is making it clear here. 
right? Jesus has overcome sin and death and evil. And there's especially a focus on he has overcome the spiritual powers, the spiritual authorities that come against him. And so first he begins by acknowledging, look, Christ, Lord of all, also knows what it is to suffer, right? And he was completely righteous, but he suffered. So as you seek to be righteous and you suffer, right, you're not alone. Jesus himself experienced this. And in his suffering, he suffered for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God. And so his suffering resulted in victory, right? He brings us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. And then we have verses 19 and 20, 21 as well, which are very challenging verses. If you heard those read um, this morning, you were thinking, what does that mean? Just know you're not alone. Um, as you read different commentaries and people writing about First uh, Peter, there's some different understandings of what this is talking about. But what most Bible commentators agree on is it's really hard to know what it's talking about. All right? That they can actually say, all right, we agree. This is really tricky. Here's some ideas. Um, rather than share with you all the different uh, potential ways to understand um, these verses, let me share the one I'm most convinced by. And if you want to read others, um, you can do that on your own or talk to me. We can have coffee and talk about First Peter, um, uh, which would be great. Um, but in particular, I think um, taking this in the context, right? Again, the context is the victory of Christ over spiritual powers. Um, and so you see, end of verse 18, it talks about Christ being made alive in the Spirit, which especially if we understand Spirit there as the Holy Spirit, um, which is a way to understand it, that's speaking of his resurrection. He was made alive in the Spirit, he rose from the dead, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, right? In verse, um, uh, end of verse 21 Verse 22 actually are very similar to the end of verse 18 and 19. That it ends with, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right, then it actually has the same verb um, that you used at the beginning of 20. is also used at the beginning of 22 when it says, who has gone into heaven. Right, or again in verse 20. Um, oh, I'm sorry, in verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed. And so there's a similarity there. There's a parallelism, which is really common in scriptures. So it seems, right, at least one understanding of this, is that Peter is speaking about Jesus' ascension into heaven Right, the part of that ascension was basically proclaiming to spirits in prison right, and somehow connected to the days of Noah. Um, and so, because um, again, in the end of verse 22, it also speaks of Jesus having power over angels, authorities, and other spiritual powers. Actually, in 2 Peter as well, which is, has a lot of interesting things in the book of 2 Peter, the second letter that we have uh, from Peter, there as well he talks about, being, about spirits, about evil spirits, basically spirits opposed to the Lord who were imprisoned and put in chains. So that seems to be a strong theme for him. So what seems to be happening, again, is he's speaking to Jesus' victory over these evil spirits. Now, why is it connected to the days of Noah? Well, here, actually, we get into another tricky passage in Genesis 6, um, uh, right before the account of the flood. In Genesis 6, um, you, you have this as it begins, um, the sixth chapter of Genesis. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Another passage that there's a lot of disagreement about and a lot of puzzlement over what does that mean? But what seems to be at least what many believe is happening there is it's speaking of fallen angels, right, of evil spirits actually having relationships with women. What's clear, even though there's some mystery around how did that work and how did that happen, what's clear is it's an example that Genesis is giving of just how bad things were. And why the Lord responded to the evil of the world with the flood, right? It sort of builds up to this is how unrighteous, this is how evil things have become. 
And Peter, right, the, the flood narrative was a very popular narrative at that time. It was really very important to the people of God at that time. It's why he mentions the flood uh, um, a few different times in his letters, right? So Peter's basically connecting that and saying, look, the spirits in prison include even those spirits, right, that rebelled against God um, that we know about in Genesis. They are defeated. The Lord is proclaiming to them his victory. All right, so again, a little complicated, but I hope you get the heart of it is the victory of Jesus. Then he connects the reference to Noah to baptism. Right? Just as Noah and his family went through the ark through the, waters of bap- or through the waters of the flood and came out right, in a new place, right? they were saved, right? they came out again in a, a really a, sort of like a new creation. Right? In the same way, as we are baptized, right? we go through the waters into new life in Christ and into a new home, into the church. And so he's making the connection there Right, with baptism, some even um, speculate that this letter was specifically written um, to the church as they were preparing to have baptisms. This is Peter encouraging them. Why, that's why he says baptism, which now saves you. Right? That's acknowledging there are baptisms that will be taking place. Right? And again, as he speaks to baptism, he makes it clear it's not so much about the physical or what happens physically, but it's about the spiritual reality. In our tradition, when we talk about the sacraments, we'll talk about an outward physical sign of an inward spiritual grace. I believe that's what Peter is getting at here. Right? There's the outward physical sign, but what I want you to remember is the inward spiritual grace. That as you come in faith, that as you appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ, right? you receive the empowerment of the resurrection of Christ, and that takes place in baptism. That's what he's celebrating there. We'll actually have a baptism service um, in a, a couple weeks. Right? And in the baptism service, in the liturgy, right, it begins with vows being made either being made by those who are being baptized or being made by parents of those who are being baptized, right? We believe it's appropriate for the parents to make um, affirmations of faith on behalf of their children. If you're wondering about that and saying, hmm, what do I think about that? We actually have a class this Saturday, 9.30 to 11.30, that you can come to where we're going to talk about baptism and family. And, and it's specifically for families who are having children baptized, but anyone is welcome, and we get more into those dynamics. Um, but again, you'll see in that service the affirmation of faith, the appeal to God for a good conscience, in the celebration of the power of the resurrection, that we are baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus. Again, in this context, right, this is about living in the victory. Jesus has won the victory over all powers, right? And that's what you are baptized into, into that new life. And yes, you are suffering now, but this is the reality, he's telling them. All powers are in subject under Jesus, are in subjection to him, and one day, right, that'll become clear, right, and we will all live in that victory. He's speaking hope to them. I heard a uh, podcast um, this week um, that was fascinating and also had two examples um, in it uh, that I want to uh, close with because both of them I felt like were powerful pictures of what this passage is speaking about. In this podcast, there are kind of two stories that come together at the end, and one is the story of a guy named Joe um, who um, fell off of a boat um, uh, out in the middle of the ocean. The boat was moving, um, you know, him, him and his friends were going back to land, but they were still miles away from the shore. He fell out of the boat, and none of his friends actually realized he had fallen out um, for hours. Um, and so he falls out of this boat, and he realizes his friends don't know that he just fell out, and he's miles away from shore. And so it tells his story. He tells the story, so you know he's going to live because he's telling the story um, in it. But it tells the story of, like, trying to swim towards the shore and realizing that the the tide is actually coming against him and just sort of treading water and getting ready to die, basically. And in telling the story, he shares about as he was out there in the water, he started to think about his growing up. Now he had grown up in the church, 
and he thought about his parents who were strong people of faith. And he began to cry out to God and to cry out to him for his help. And he said, I experienced the presence of God in a way I never had before. I just knew God was with me. I assumed I was going to die. <laughs> um, I'd see him very soon. Um, but I had this incredible peace, even though I was assuming I was going to drown. Now, the second story um, that the podcast tells is about the, the Coast Guard who saved him and found him. And uh, Joe, actually, in speaking about the Coast Guard, and it was interesting, Michael Lewis is the host of the podcast. It's a podcast called Against the Rules. Um, he says, Joe asked in particular that we would share this part of his story, and we want to honor his request. And then they cut to Joe sharing, I am so thankful for the Coast Guard, right? I mean, they saved my life. But the ultimate person who saved my life is Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. That he saved me body and soul. And I just want anyone who listens to this podcast to know it. I was just struck, like, always give a defense for the hope you have, right? Joe wanted to celebrate all the people that had helped him. But first and foremost, he wanted to celebrate the hope that he has in Christ. And he did so with gentleness and respect. It's interesting. Michael Lewis, who's clearly um, from earlier things he said, actually, about his own life in the podcast, is not a person of faith, talks about how much he loved talking with Joe. And so you have that defense, right, that, that, that godly defense of the hope that he has. Right, but then the other story is about a guy who works for the Coast Guard who over years and years developed software for the Coast Guard so they could find people like Joe. When he first came and began working for the Coast Guard, he realized that while the Coast Guard could easily find like, where a ship was last located or where someone fell off a boat, they couldn't figure out how they had drifted in that time. And depending on the weather conditions and the time of day and the weight of the person and numerous factors, they would drift in different ways. So they'd end up finding you know, where you know, they were hours ago, but they couldn't figure out where to go from there. And this guy became consumed by, we got to figure out a way to find people hours after they've fallen off a boat or find a boat hours after it's capsized. And so for years, right, he went out to this bay and would do all sorts of tests at different times of the day and in different weather to figure out how different things drifted. And after years of doing this, he developed this software. And the podcast basically shares thousands and thousands of lives have been saved because of this software, because they can actually find people, people that they never would have found, people like Joe. And so the podcast ends, and it's actually the ceremony where Joe is meeting with the members of the um, Coast Guard who saved him to give thanks to them, right? But, but up front, right, is the members of the Coast Guard, the ones in the boat that pulled him out of the water. Um, but actually, the guy who developed um, the software, um, and I'm, i got to say his name, uh, I wrote it down somewhere. Arthur Allen, the guy who developed the software, Arthur Allen, just happened to show up that day. He didn't realize there was a special ceremony. So he's actually in the audience watching this. And he actually, he says as they interview him, look, I'm glad they're celebrating the Coast Guard. Those guys are awesome. Their jobs are very, very hard, the rescuers. And so they should be celebrated. So he's not upset, but there is some irony that actually these guys are being celebrated and he who developed the software that ultimately, you know, Joe never would have been found apart from that is just sitting in the audience. But again, he has no problem with it. I mean, he actually makes it clear. Look, the blessing, he doesn't use the word blessing, but I will, is the life saved. But, right, Lewis shares, right, that as that happened, right, and as everybody was clapping for those rescuers, there was one person, one other person in the audience who knew Arthur Allen and knew that he had created that software. And that person came up and sat next to Allen and said, good job. I just thought, what a picture, right, of Psalm 34, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. Even if no one else sees your desire for righteousness, even if no one else sees your desire to bless, even when you're reviled, to trust in the Lord, even in the midst of your suffering, the Lord sees it. 
And there will be a time where we will see him face to face and he will say to us, good job. Let's, let's live for that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we proclaim that you have the victory, that you have defeated sin and death and the powers of evil. And Lord, we pray that we would live in that victory. We would live in the reality of our baptism, that we belong to you, Lord. And Lord, uh, I pray for any today who are, who are struggling in this, who are facing challenges or trials, or struggling to believe that even in the midst of this, you see them, or that you'd remind them today through your word, through your spirit, that you see their hearts. Um, you care for them. You hold them. May they um, know um, the, the joy, the anticipation of your coming. Well done, good and faithful servant. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.